Hello, and welcome to the Blue Economy Podcast, brought to you by Rhode Island, the ocean state. We have an exciting guest on this episode, United States Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. But before we get started, we have a note. We recorded this interview in March before the COVID-19 crisis became prevalent. So if you're wondering why we didn't touch on that issue, now you know. Thanks for listening, and now let's get into the episode. Welcome to the Blue Economy Podcast, presented by Rhode Island, the ocean state. I'm your host, David Hirschman. On this podcast, we're diving deep into everything that's happening in the world's growing ocean economy. And on this episode, we're talking about the federal government. Specifically, we wanted to talk about what the government is currently doing from a policy perspective, or what it can do, to support a wide range of businesses operating in and around the ocean. And perhaps more importantly, we want to talk about what the government is doing to protect the oceans themselves. Because between significant increases in water temperature, the rise in sea levels, acidification, plastic pollution, and plenty of other mitigating factors, the world's oceans are certainly dealing with their fair share of environmental issues. To cover all of this, we had the opportunity to sit down with our guest on today's episode, United States Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. Senator Whitehouse has a well-earned reputation as one of the nation's leading voices on the realities of climate change. His climate speeches on the Senate floor, 250 of them and counting, have become iconic in their own right. And over the course of his career as a lawmaker, he has introduced or co-sponsored a long list of sustainability-focused bills. He has also acted as a vocal champion for emerging environmentally conscious industries like offshore renewable energy. And along with Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, he co-chairs the bipartisan Senate Oceans Caucus. There are few elected leaders in the nation better suited to provide insight on the federal government's role in the ocean economy, and so we were thrilled to have Senator Whitehouse with us. We recorded this interview in March 2020 in our studio in downtown Providence. Once again, thank you for tuning into this episode of the Blue Economy Podcast, presented by Rhode Island, the Ocean State. You can catch up on previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or just head to www.blueeconomypodcast.com. Coming up now, our conversation with United States Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. So welcome, Senator Whitehouse. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Terrific to be here with you. I'm glad you're doing this. Yeah, thanks. Um, So I wanted to start with kind of a personal question. Um, You've obviously spent a lot of energy and focus on issues related to the environment and also by extension the ocean. Um, And meanwhile, your wife is a marine scientist uh, who serves on the National Council for the Science Environment um, and has served on numerous other boards, obviously. Um, Do you have an origin story for your interest or your connection to the ocean and the environment? No? No, I really don't. I grew up in the Foreign Service. Um, traveling among a lot of faraway countries and largely, I think, by coincidence, they tended to be ocean-fronting countries. Um, So it's always been with me. And more recently about the environment, or I guess how did you get so become such a kind of staunch defender for the environment? Well, um, the ocean's Um, are really taking a beating right now. We are pumping heat into them because they're absorbing the excess heat, more than 90% of the excess heat that all of our greenhouse gases have trapped actually aren't in the atmosphere. They've gone down into the oceans, been absorbed by the oceans at the rate of multiple Hiroshima nuclear bomb detonations worth of heat per second, per second. So the heat load going into the oceans is very considerable. They are acidifying 
at the fastest rate ever in human history. You have to go back to the great pre-human mass extinctions to find a similar pace of change um, in the oceans. They're about 30% more acidic, which is really bad news for creatures with shells. Um, and because of that warming and because of um, the melting of uh, land ice, you're seeing oceans rising. So it's becoming a much more salient question for coastal places. And then if the climate aspects weren't enough, we're also dumping huge amounts of plastic waste and a lot of toxic and uh, polluting runoff from agriculture and other uses into the ocean. So the whole array of insults that we are uh, providing to the oceans is really pretty considerable. I was going to say, how, so how, how dire is it for the oceans particularly? Uh, I mean, it's pretty dire. We're looking at predictions that essentially all coral reefs are gone by 2100. Um, we're looking at predictions that if we don't change our ways, there'll be more plastic waste by mass floating around in the oceans than there will be fish living in the oceans. Those are two pretty horrible things to turn over to future generations. Thanks, we took these beautiful oceans that God gave us that are rich and abundant, what Pope Francis called our ocean wonder world. And what we're passing on to you guys is more waste than fish in them and, uh, you know, a fine mess. In general, it can be pretty overwhelming as an ordinary citizen to try to be environmentally responsible. Um, and while there's certainly inv ways to kind of reduce our individual carbon footprint, um, and obviously there is initiatives to reduce single-use plastic and that kind of thing, um, for the public at large, it can seem sort of futile to focus on avoiding plastic straws when there are all these massive corporations all around the world polluting like there's no tomorrow. Yeah. Um, can individual people really make any impact on this problem? And if not, what more can they do to convince these big companies and the governments to, that it's in their best interest to, that it's in their best interest to change? I think it's defeatist to say that um, banning plastic straws or banning plastic bags doesn't make a difference because other people are doing so many bad things. First of all, there's the starfish theory. You might not have saved them all, but you saved that one when you threw it back into the water. And second, when you do this, you send ripples out in your behavior and you send signals out of awareness that end up actually having political effect. And companies begin to change their behavior and politicians begin to change their behavior, not because one person didn't use one straw, but because a lot of people collectively made the individual choice to stop using plastic straws, for instance. Um, but the bottom line, I think, of a lot of the problems that we have is – um, economic signals. And because our politics has gotten so polluted with big special interest money, particularly big special interest money that hides itself as dark money, so you don't know, it's like Rhode Islanders for Peace and Puppies and Prosperity is running an ad and everybody knows there's no such thing, so <laughs> what the hell is this ad doing on my television? Um, but it's up there and it's smearing people and they have their, they have their way. There is absolutely no economic reason. If you're a pure conservative market economist, there is absolutely no reason that the plastic industry should not be held accountable for the waste that they produce that ends up in the ocean. That's what's called a negative externality in economics ease, and they should bake that into the price of their product in a conservative market economy, even more so for carbon pollution. 
But these are very big industries. The fossil fuel industry in particular has a $650 billion per year subsidy in terms of not paying for its negative externalities, according to the International Monetary Fund, which isn't even an environmental group. So they have a huge, huge prize that they're fighting for, and they spend that dirty money in politics to fend off uh, proper economic uh, accountability. And it's basically, you know, political thievery on a grand scale. So you build a coalition to fix those things and to create the solid solution to those things by starting with the beach cleanups, the bag bans, the straw, uh, plastic straws not being used. And you end up with, finally, if you can break the back of these corrupt industries, the um, chance to do the right thing. So it's, would campaign finance reform then be part of an you know environmental protection also? Totally. The flip side of climate denial is dark money. It's two sides of the same nasty coin. They would not be where they are if they couldn't hide who they were when they spent their millions of grubby political dollars. And um, we'd be all over them trying to out them. As it is, we're all over them and outing them. But, you know, five years late and... 5% of the money, it's a whole sure. different story if, you're, if it's not transparent. But um, transparency is a vitally important connection between what the public wants and what industry does. Obviously, there's been a lot of policy been put forward in the past few years based on skepticism and kind of hostility towards fact-based science. Um, and, you know, here on the Blue Economy podcast, we're proud believers in data and science as a basis for policy. Yeah, and the oceans are actually pretty reliable in that sense. The climate denial operation has done a lot with difficult out-year computer modeling that relates to uh, the way the climate and the atmosphere behave. But for Pete's sake, you go to the ocean, you measure sea level rise with basically a yardstick, the tide gauge. You measure ocean warming with a thermometer. People understand a thermometer. And the acidification you measure with really basic pH strips. And every middle school class with an aquarium knows what pH testing is like. So the fact part of this becomes quite hard uh, to dispute, even for the most poisonous science deniers, um, because it's just so obvious. People so, trust thermometers. Does that make it easier to build consensus? Then? It does. Yeah. And I also think there's something kind of, I don't know how to say this, but there's something kind of sentimental in the human heart about oceans. I just find, even with really difficult colleagues, um, that oceans brings out a different point of view. My worst enemy in the Senate on all things climate is Jim Inhofe. Jim Inhofe was one of the original co-sponsors of our marine plastic waste bill because he has a thing for ocean turtles and he knows that they get tangled up in marine plastic and that they drown and that it's bad and um to get him as an early adopter of our marine plastic bill was like a huge <laughs> signal to the senate oh my god white house and inhofe there's room for me between those two i can get on this bill well, so I was going to say, you know, you, you've uh, co-sponsored legislation with uh, Senator Murkowski, um, the Blue, Blue Globe, Globe. Ask, yeah. Act last year, um, which was aimed at helping Americans better understand the coasts and waterways. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, uh, what that effort was all about and then also kind of, you know, how, how you bring together um, people with 
you know, very divergent views for yeah. something like this. Um, that is mostly about ocean uh, data and monitoring. Um, it's about increasing international cooperation on ocean data and monitoring. It's an innovation prize for exciting new developments in ocean uh, data and monitoring. Um, it provides um, a variety of programs to support information coming back out of uh, the oceans. It's um, in the process right now of gathering bipartisan co-sponsors and of broadening the group that we wrote it with to test other stakeholders and make sure we're not bumping into anything that would stop the bill on the floor, basically building the coalition for um, unanimous consent. And could you tell me a little bit about your role as co-chair of the Senate Oceans Caucus also? Is that... Yeah, when I got there, there was nothing happening on oceans. And I realized, given the weird environment of the Senate, we'd need to have a group that pulled together on this. So I asked Senator Murkowski, who's my lead on Blue Globe, um, to co-found an Oceans Caucus. And then recognizing that Commerce has a subcommittee on fisheries that would want to be involved, we made sure that the chair and ranking member of that subcommittee were automatically also co-chairs ex officio. So that's our leadership. And then we went out and just started to round up people to become um, members of the Oceans Caucus. And we promised them that this would be not a letterhead caucus, but a real working caucus. And when we started knocking off the fisheries treaties, getting them approved, when we started knocking off, uh, we got the um, IUU fishing bill, the pirate fishing bill done, people started to see, oh my gosh, there isn't much going on in the Senate, but things are moving through this Oceans uh, Caucus. And so it's been uh, a very pleasant surprise to see how well received it's been. And it's been a pleasant surprise to see membership from states that have no coasts. Well, yeah, I was, I was going to ask about that. Is there more interest from states that have coasts? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's real. They've got yeah. fishing communities. They've got uh, shoreline uh, municipalities facing sea level rise. They've got marine science facilities that are pulsing out the warnings of what's happening in the seas. But the fact that it goes beyond that, and I've got, you know, a senator from Oklahoma and others yeah. <laughs> who are a part of this, um, I think it shows two things. One, there's a common bipartisan desire to be part of something that is productive in the Senate, which is a good sign. And um, two, there is some human affinity for oceans, even if you don't live near one. And, you know, you, you've been quoted as saying that uh, as a human race, we understand more about the moon than we do about our own oceans. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I know that only, I think, currently about 15% of the sea floors are mapped. Yeah, there's a lot of the ocean that is unmapped. My friend Bob Ballard has been buzzing around on his boat out in the Pacific doing mapping because we have better mapping of the dark side of the moon than we have of significant parts of our own Earth's oceans. So simple things like that, I think, are helpful. Um, I think there's going to be a new era of ocean interest emerging. Unfortunately, it's going to be largely because of the threats, largely because of the damage that's happening in our oceans. But People are flocking to marine science programs. People are flocking to marine uh, protective NGOs. The existing environmental community is moving and opening ocean segments of their portfolio of, of interest. And um, you're just seeing a really big move in that direction. And I couldn't welcome that more. 
So we were talking about sort of the ocean data kind of collection, the seafloor stuff. Um, what's sort of the bridge between that and kind of commercial opportunities? Um, and do you, do you see that, you know, some of the work that you're doing, you know, for expanding knowledge and expanding data um, as uh, part of commerce also? Yes. And in particular, um, it is data that is going to facilitate intelligent decisions where there are conflicts in use in the ocean, and particularly where there are new entrants who want to use the ocean. And uh, a perfect example is offshore wind. Rhode Island solved the sighting problem of offshore wind with data by bringing URI and science and maps to the table and bringing the stakeholders all together and over a course of not much more than a year, sorting out where suitable sites were. And boom, we had that thing up and running. We were the first place in the country with steel in the water, first place in the country with electrons on the grid. They tried it the other way in Massachusetts with Cape Wind, and the whole thing just fell to pieces, collapsed after a decade of work. So data actually enables the intelligent decision-making that can uh, make uses um, safe in the ocean, not harmful in the ocean, and can resolve competition uh, between conflicting users. And sure enough, along comes Vineyard Wind, and they did not follow the Rhode Island model. They tried to jam people, and they've gotten no place as a result, and they're all tangled up with BOEM, the uh, fisheries, the offshore regulator for uh, citing these things, and they didn't learn the lesson. But the rest of the industry, um, and particularly Vineyard Wind, uh, uh, sorry, Deepwater Wind, Rhode Island's and its successor have, have uh, taken a look at that and realized, oops, the Rhode Island model actually works. Data. And, and so, people in the room. And you, and you mean data in terms of like, you know, studying the effect on fishing, studying the Yeah, where do the whales go? Yeah. yeah. And where where are the where's the good the valuable fisheries and where might there be historic sites or wrecks uh, you know all of that it's stuff we do on land all the time you can go to the Department of Administration they've got GIS situations so you know when you dig you're not going into an electric wire or an old graveyard or whatever applying that to the oceans takes data but it makes things a lot smarter and safer. So, sort of turning to the kind of blue tech as a um, economic opportunity, um, you know, there's certain industries within the blue economy, um, offshore wind, for example, um, that seem to be quickly proving that there's profits to be made in protecting the planet. Um, do you think that there are enough win-win opportunities out there to incentivize um, the, the out there to incentivize the business community to play their part in protecting the environment? Yes, undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. I think the issue for us is actually kind of an easy one in that Rhode Island is the location of multiple star companies and industries. And what we have not yet done is assembled those stars into a constellation so that each helps the other. They can pull together when they need to, and they can you know, eliminate conflicts and make good win-win decisions. So this isn't like a battle in which you have to hurt some interest in order to 
uh, move another interest forward. And as we saw in the recent Blue Economy Summit that the delegation hosted out at Save the Bay, there's a lot of enthusiasm for this because all the different participants see the same opportunity. It's a question of people in all the different spaces in which Rhode Island is expert um, beginning to pull together more, and they're eager to have the support from us to do that. And as part of that sort of thinking of themselves as part of the same project? In, the in a way, yes, in a way. I think if you are Newark and you're doing really extensive undersea uh, exploration, your research has value over at URI, where they are studying coastal systems and all of that. And uh, out of URI comes the science that supports our aquaculture folks, which are a very successful uh, industry. And keeping the bay clean and open for uh, aquaculture is also a huge win for our uh, marinas and for our tourist economy. And the pieces all intersect and they all connect and facilitating all of the different pieces to communicate with each other and come up with common plans and know that they can get our support going forward is really the goal. And so uh, what are some of the kind of more interesting or exciting projects um, uh, taking place in the kind of global blue economy that you've been uh, – that you've come across lately? Well, you know, some are, are simple things like um, Norway and Washington State turning their ferries into electric and supporting port electrification so that they can uh, do that. We could certainly do that. Um, in some places in Rhode Island. Um, there is offshore wind, which is going to be, I think, a just enormous, enormous opportunity. Um, and then I think that the knowledge economy on this is also going to be incredibly important. And I think GSO has a big role to play in the future in all of this. Graduate School of Oceanography at the University of Rhode Island is one of the most expert places on coastal uh, oceanography, and on resilience. And unfortunately, because of what we've allowed the fossil fuel industry to get away with for decades, we are going to see a lot of harm happening to coasts all around the world. Wherever the land meets the sea, there will be problems and challenges. And that creates the opportunity for Rhode Island, for America, for GSO most specifically, to be the pros who can come in and give the technical advice that helps local communities solve their problems in an intelligent way and, and deal with them and minimize the harm. And um, that knowledge base, I think, is an area where we can be true international leaders. In fact, we kind of already are. I mean, your eyes over in Indonesia. It's on the west coast of Africa. It's We're... we're We've got the footprint already. We just need to build out. So, you know, places like the United Kingdom and Netherlands and Denmark have already established themselves as world leaders in the blue economy. But what are some of the things that sets uh, our stateside uh, assets apart from, you know, as a place to locate these in the world? Well, you combine along the coasts a very rich economic opportunity because of the oceans-related side hitting the terrestrial side, you also have a very big um, tourist and visitor potential because people love to be near the ocean if it's clean and, you know, safe. Um, and that's the reason that so many people now live in counties that are oceanfront counties. It's the, it drives the those counties are the strongest economic drivers in the country. So there's a lot of appeal 
And the problem has been we've just been haphazard about working the different elements so that they support each other better. And that's where those other countries got ahead of us, is that they were talking to each other sooner, and they were organizing better, and they were figuring out what were the good ideas that drew all of the different stars of the constellation together and executing on those ideas. And we can very readily do that, and the Blue Economy program here in Rhode Island is the vehicle for making that happen. In general, why is the the blue economy important and why in particular is it important for Rhode Island? It's particularly important for Rhode Island because there's so much stuff that we're good at here that relates to the blue economy. And by connecting those things together, I mean, URI's Graduate School of Oceanography is a fabulous world-class facility. Our aquaculture is as good as anywhere in the world. We have the best sailing sites and some of the most master craftsman-type boat builders anywhere on the planet. We have beaches and tourism to beat the band that attract people from all over the place. We have very important shipping leaders here, and we have a huge military ocean presence through Newark and through Electric Boat. We have just a lot going on. But everybody is good at what they do. What we're learning now is that when everybody pulls together and figures out what are the common denominators that will lift all boats, we can move them all forward. And that's what's exciting. Rhode Island is small enough that you can get everybody's attention. You can get people in a room. We're expert enough that we're world-class when we get together and do this. And we've got a huge potential because we are the ocean state. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Blue Economy Podcast, presented by Rhode Island, the ocean state. Thank you once again to Senator Whitehouse for joining us in the studio. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to learn more about the podcast, catch up on past episodes, or shoot us a note with your comments, head to our website at www.blueeconomypodcast.com, or look us up on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. From Providence, Rhode Island, I'm your host, David Hirschman. Thanks for listening.